If you're new with us, we are studying the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. We're considering uh, various matters of life under the sun. And we've considered uh, various things in this fallen and frustrated world like the brevity of life, uh, the reality of death. We've talked about toil. We've talked about wealth. We've talked about friendship. And today we're adding a new topic to this study from chapter 5, what one writer calls church under the sun. Um, it's almost like we're scrolling through our pictures, perhaps on our phone or something, and we've, Ecclesiastes, we've we looked at some pictures of our friends, we looked at some pictures of our food, we looked at some pictures of our work, and now we're looking at a picture of our assembling together uh, for corporate worship. Uh, and one of the dominant themes here in chapter 5, 1 to 7, is the need to pay attention and to listen, to draw near to listen. So let's pray for help as we do that now. God, you are indeed merciful and mighty, and we worship you. We need to hear from you. So as we often pray, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Some of you may be old enough to remember or perhaps trying to forget uh, the rap group Run DMC. Um, <laughs> 80s rap, as you know, often comes to my fallen mind uh, too often. And uh, Run DMC had a song that came to mind as I was studying this text. It was called, You Talk Too Much. Yep, you talk too much. You never shut up, they say. I said, you talk too much. Homeboy, you never shut up. And the, the uh, depth of lyrics goes on. Hey, you over there, I know about your kind. You're like the independent network news on Channel 9. Everywhere that you go, no matter where you are at, I said you talk about this and you talk about that. When the cat took your tongue, I say you took it right back. Your mouth is so big, one bite could kill a Big Mac. You talk too much. And that's why it was a, it was a top, you know, top the charts, right? Um, well, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, uh, you recall chapter 1, verse 1, is called the preacher or teacher. In Hebrew, it's the word kohelet. Uh, the writer, uh, has a similar thing in mind when it comes to worship. We often talk too much. It's similar to James chapter 1, verse 19, as James says that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now, have you ever been in the presence of someone you admire greatly? Isn't it very inappropriate to approach them and just start yapping away? Right? Isn't there a sense of focus and reverence deference, submission, right? Eagerness to hear what they have to say when you're in the presence of someone that you admire. This happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. I had the privilege and pleasure of having brunch with Dr. John Piper. He's a well-known pastor and author. For those of you who are not familiar with Piper, a man I deeply admire. I wrote my dissertation on Piper and he's impacted me tremendously. And so this was no ordinary Monday as I was having scrambled eggs with Dr. Piper. And so I was ready to fire several questions his way. I started with the casual questions of how's your family and so on. I asked him about his upcoming sermon at the conference where we were at. And then something strange happened. He started asking me questions. And so he says, uh, Tony, what are you writing? And I said, well, right now, just sermons on Ecclesiastes. And I said, by the way, Dr. Piper, I recognize on your website that uh, on the scripture index, you don't have Ecclesiastes. Um, and he says, oh, that's right. And I don't have Song of Solomon either. 
And I said, well, I'm doing that one next. Um, <laughs> like, how do you expect me to prepare these sermons if you have not said anything about them? And then Dr. Piper turned and said, um, please teach me Ecclesiastes. And I said, right now? <laughs> I said, uh, and so he begins to ask me questions about Ecclesiastes. And then I said, Dr. Piper, I don't think you understand how this is supposed to work, okay? <laughs> I'm supposed to be asking you questions. In fact, I'm, I'm readily prepared with many questions that I would like uh, to ask you. And it was this uh, sense in which uh, I, I felt like, hey, if you were in the room, you should be the one talking, okay? And I should be the one listening, well, how much more in the presence of Almighty God should we be, as we get before his word, in his presence, be quick to listen and slow to speak? Run DMC should not have to sing their song to us when we are dealing with Almighty God. Addressing God flippantly or making empty promises to God. Just yapping away, saying pious things that we think he wants to hear. Ecclesiastes was written some 3,000 years ago, but not much has changed. In fact, I would argue nothing has changed about the human heart. In the words of Ecclesiastes, nothing is new under the sun. And so this text is very relevant for us, and it addresses a number of different uh, types of people that may enter a worship service. Those who haven't thought about God all week long and then just sort of show up and throw up a few words, not really engage, and then go on thinking it's all good. That person is addressed in this text. Or others who aren't listening attentively, trying to learn because they think they have all the answers. Or kind of the consumer Christian that bounces from church to church to church because things aren't the way they want it. Or some churches who give people nothing to listen to where there's very little exposition of God's word. Or those who think, you know, if I could just pray in old English, then that certainly has to get God's ear. I need a few more, you know, beseech these, then, then my prayers will be effectual. Know that all of us are addressed in this text, and we all need a good dose of Ecclesiastes 5. God is in heaven, and we are on earth, so let our words be few. So let's start with the obvious in chapter 5, 1 to 7. God is the most important word in the passage. Six times in seven verses, Kohelet mentions the God that we worship. We worship the God that Ecclesiastes has been expounding for us, who is just, who is wise, who is good, who is holy. And now the question is, how do we approach this God? And you see the bookends in the chapter, chapter 5, verse 1, or bookends of these, this passage, I should say. Verse 1, guard your steps. And verse 7, God is the one you must fear. So both carry this idea of reverence and all that frames up how we are to read everything in the middle. The text is talking to us about the way in which we approach God and we approach him with reverence and awe. Now, we should qualify this <clears throat> by saying that this is not the only attitude that is appropriate for worship. We know when we read the Psalms that it is also appropriate to uh, be glad and to be joyful. As the psalmist tells us to, to uh, play with loud instruments, to clap our hands, to shout to God. Those are appropriate expressions, and we are people of the resurrection, so we have a lot to celebrate 
And there is a great reason to celebrate with, with gladness and joy. But that's another sermon. This sermon and this text is talking about this particular disposition, and that is one of reverence and awe, which is not just an Old Testament idea. Hear the word of Hebrews in the New Testament. Therefore, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer uh, to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He is to be worshiped with reverence and awe. And the fear of God is not just an Old Testament concept. In that same book in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or the words of Jesus who said, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, we are to fear God. We are to revere God. And the reason the writer is addressing this particular heart attitude is because he's simply correcting problems. He's addressing uh, issues. And that is the lack of awe that can be present in our lives and present in our worship. And that's very, very important to us, isn't it? Because when you lose your awe of God, you're a walking disaster zone. You're capable of anything. We cannot lose our awe of him. There is to be gravity and gladness in worship. And this text is focusing on the gravity, on the reverence, on the awe of worship. Now you might think as you're reading Ecclesiastes that this is an abrupt shift from what we've been looking at thus far. Chapter four was all about companionship and hardship and ambition and toil. And now we're talking about guarding our steps when we come to the house of God. What is that about? But I would argue that worship has been a major focus in Ecclesiastes, only it's been addressing the false gods that people worship, right? The false god of pleasure, of knowledge, of wealth, of power, of achievement. And Jesus says when it comes to worship, the issue is the object of your worship. We're all worshipers. And he says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve pleasure or ambition, or self-advancement, and God. It is me, he says. And so, it is not until we get this worship question right that we get life and death right. Life and death, dominant themes in Ecclesiastes. What's the good life? How should we live? Death, the reality of it. And those two things will make sense when we get worship right. Everything flows out of that center. So let's have a look at this very important text. As you think about the structure, basically what we have here are two paragraphs that mirror each other. And let me just throw it up. This is not, uh, this is not original to me, uh, but as indicated and expressed by various writers, you have basically the, the same thing happening in both paragraphs. There is a positive exhortation followed by a negative exhortation. That is something said negatively that we should do or, or avoid. And then a proverb, okay? And that pattern is repeated in paragraph two. Both of them are emphasizing reverence and awe. So segment one, the positive is stated, approaching God with humility and attentiveness. Avoid the sacrifice of fools. And then he says it negatively, verse two. Do not be quick to speak before God, for he is awesome. Then the proverb, as I've summarized it there, fools gush out many empty words. You have a slight shift in subject, but it's the same pattern in the second segment. Keep your vows, stated positive, then he states it negatively. 
Make no vow that you're not certain to keep. And then the proverb is almost the exact same proverb, that we should not be a fool who gushes out many empty words, followed by this conclusion, summarizing it all, fear God. So that's what we're going to do. Let's look at segment one, segment two, to uh, encourage your souls today. Just know segment one will take longer than number two, okay? Uh, I didn't express that to the nine, and I think they felt a little discouraged 20 minutes in uh, because I hadn't finished verse one. So here we go, segment number one. Uh, I have more to say about it, okay? Uh, He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. There's a sense in which we should approach God with humility and with attentiveness, as he says, draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing is evil. Guard your steps. If you've ever flown through Amsterdam, you'll hear this repeating, you know, uh, instruction to mind your step as you enter the movable walkways. It's the most annoying uh, thing I've ever heard in an airport, I think, because it just keeps on going all through that airport. Mind your step. That's been on my mind as I've thought about this text. We are to, to, to mind our steps, to guard our steps, to proceed with caution when we enter God's presence. You think of Exodus chapter three, when Moses appears to God and he is uh, told to remove his sandals because he is in the presence of the holy. The house of God refers to Solomon's temple in this day, and this was the center of everything for the Jew. This was, it was massive in size and in grandeur. Even the structure itself was intended to draw people's attention to the holiness of God the transcendence of God, the greatness of God, and all those sacrifices to draw their attention to the mercy of God, to the grace of God. But of course, worship could become a sham if you forgot who, what you were doing and what all of that was, was for. And so the fool is, is, is the title that's given to the person who is just uh, entering God's presence uh, uh, mindlessly and, and gushing out many words and not really thinking about what they're doing. And so the exhortation is to be prepared to remember what it is that we're doing and who it is we're approaching. Now, of course, we do not have to make a pilgrimage to Israel uh, in order to enter the presence of God. We have Jesus Christ who called himself the greater temple. Therefore, to meet God now, we don't have to go to a temple. We go to a person. And it is in and through Jesus, Ephesians 2 tells us, that we have access to God all the time. And that is a great gift of grace, right? It is through Jesus, not a temple, that we have access to God. And now we are his temple. Now he dwells with us. He dwells in us. And so as we think about this text in our day, we don't want to say necessarily that buildings are totally unimportant. But we do want to say that they're not most important when it comes to worship. What makes this building important is the fact that God's people assemble here. That's what makes this place special. It's not the building itself, but it's the presence of the saints. It's kind of like a house. Kimberly and I just uh, got a new house and we moved all week long and boxes for days are currently in my house. And before we moved all of that stuff uh, in our house, Kimberly was there on Monday waiting on the plumbers to get there and do a little work on the house. And she texted me and said, an empty house is slightly creepy when alone in it. And I said, that's a great sermon illustration. I do appreciate that. Um, (laughs) Because what makes a house a home is the family. Take the family out, it's not a home. It's just a house. 
And what makes a church building special is not the building, it's the family of God who assemble. That's what makes it special. You could show up on a Monday or Tuesday here when nobody's in this room, and maybe you introverts might like that, actually. You're welcome to do it. You're totally welcome to do it. I don't like it, um, but I like it when you guys are here. I like it when the people of God are present, and that's true in every space, regardless of a building that has a high ceiling, which I prefer, uh, or a low ceiling, or it's in a house in China, or under a tree in some remote part of the world. When the people of God are together, there is gravity and gladness in worship. We prepare our hearts as we enter God's presence together as an assembly. And what is it that we are to do when we we gather together? Well, one of the primary things we do is listen. That's a strange thing to think about, isn't it? That we gather to listen. Draw near to listen, he says. And so that that implies, and the whole, all of verse one implies that we first, A, show up, (laughs) and then B, we listen up. Draw near to listen. Now we cannot overestimate or overemphasize the importance of listening for the disciple. How we listen really will impact our entire spiritual lives. And we, I could cite verses for days to illustrate this. A tiny sampling. In the garden, our first parents sinned. Why? Because they listened to the wrong voice. That brought sin and death and destruction into the world. Israel, God's chosen people, are called stiff-necked, stubborn, because they refuse to listen. Psalm 81, oh, that my people would listen to me. In Nehemiah 8, one of the causes of revival in Nehemiah 8 is that the people were, Ezra says, attentive to God's word. Jesus' famous parable of the soils says that there are four ways in which we hear, and Jesus says, be careful how you hear. How you hear impacts everything. Or Jesus says, he's talking about himself as the good shepherd. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. They don't listen to false shepherds, but my sheep know my voice. When Jesus explains the process of restoration of a brother or sister, everything hinges on how the the person listens. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's about listening. At the transfiguration, Jesus, uh, the the veil is, is taken away, as it were, and the disciples see his glory, and this voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Mary and Martha are together with Jesus, but one of them chose the better. Mary sat and listened to Jesus' word at his feet. Repeatedly, Jesus would say things like, he who has an ear, let him hear. Or in all seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's just a small sampling of the importance of listening. And the reason listening well is important is because listening leads to understanding, which then leads to transformation. Because for God's word to change you, you must understand it. And to understand it, you must first listen to it. So that's why we don't want to multitask. That's why we need to focus. Because we're hearing God's word. We need to be like Samuel, don't we? Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. That is an incredibly important discipline for the Christian. 
And that's what chapter five, verse one is emphasizing. As we approach God's house, we're coming to listen to his word. Now, one, one thing that is assumed here is this pattern of frequenting God's house. And I want to say just a word about that. Sometimes people speak negatively about the routine of Sunday, right? But I want to remind you that not all routines are bad. Like brushing your teeth. Like, you shouldn't wake up and say, you know, I'm just tired of the routine. Okay? No, you should keep doing it. You should keep doing it. Probably more than you are. Uh, me too. Uh, or deodorant. I'm just really tired of the routine. Won't that get old? I've told my, my kids this, and I've told students this in student ministry for years, that coming to a conference or a camp is a great thing, but what really matters are those quiet times. What really matters is you building in patterns in your life that will shape your life. And sometimes what's going to happen is not that you get a great emotional high when you read the Bible for 30 minutes in the morning, but what is happening is you're shaping patterns. And those patterns are forming your loves. And all of our patterns form our, our loves and the direction of our life. And so it's the same with corporate worship. Not every Sunday will you drive away with a great buzz, right? Not every Sunday is going to be this emotional high. Some sermons are going to be, eh, not that great. But why, why is it that, what's happening though? Well, what's happening is uh, we're, 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 we're shaped by this routine. As we go to the house of God, there's just an assumption that God's people are going to assemble. And we, we don't tell people who practice sports, you know, oh, just stop if you fail. No, a basketball player gets better at that three-point shot by continuing to practice. An artist or a craftsman gets better by repetition. I tell guys who want to preach, you need reps. And you don't stop when you fail. You don't tell the runner to quit when he or she doesn't reach the goal. No, you press on with more reps. And it's the same with worship. We don't just stop when there's some wild buzz that's absent. No, we keep attending, we keep assembling, we keep listening, we keep worshiping. And we allow the cumulative effect of that over time to impact us and shape who we are. This is at the center of who we are. So Kohelet here, the preacher, is not asking us to do something that we don't ordinarily do. That is, routines. The problem with a routine is not the routine. It's when we do the routine poorly. It's when the routine is done in a way that is not, uh, that doesn't uh, uh, involve a sense of deliberation. We even say that in sports, don't we? Practice makes perfect when practice is perfect. When you're doing things the right way, over time it has an impact. And the reason the routine of worship sometimes doesn't shape a person is because their routine is bad. It's because they don't guard their steps when they come to the house of God. That is, be mentally prepared. Be prayed up. Be ready to encourage a brother or sister. Be engaged. That's what he's talking about here in verse 1. There's a sense in which we approach God with humility and attentiveness. And he adds here, that's better. To show up to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing is evil. The sacrifice of fools. We're to offer the sacrifice of praise, offering him songs, our, our, our offerings. That is sacrificial. But here we see the sacrifice of fools. He's talking about a lack of sincerity. And here in this context, as they were offering these sacrifices in the temple, thinking you could just sort of mindlessly go through the motions, through this, this so-called ritual, and it's all good. 
And the writer says it's actually evil. Heartless sacrifices are not just foolish, but he adds, they don't even know that they're doing evil over time, over and over and over again. Now, I think that's an important word for us today because there are a lot of people who have a hard time with church, and I would just say, for good reason. There's a lot of foolery done in the name of God. There's a lot of evil done in the name of God. And we should repent of that. We should be embarrassed by that. That fact is treated right here. In corporate worship, there are going to be two different types of worship going on. Those that are offering authentic worship to God, you know, and others who are just sort of doing the thing. And what they're doing is actually displeasing in God's sight. And that's not just present here in Ecclesiastes 5, but that's borne out all through the scriptures. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, the church just is taking off. But then we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to God about how much money they put in the offering plate. And God was not pleased with that. Or in 1 Corinthians, how people were abusing the Lord's Supper. So if that's you, if you're skittish about the church, you should know, number one, that this happens. Number two... The application is not run away from the church, but for you to pursue authentic worship. You don't read in Acts 6 people saying, well, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the church. I'm not showing up again. Didn't you see Ananias and Sapphira? No, what happens in Acts 6 is the church just explodes. The church goes uh, from city to city to city to city. There's always going to be, Jesus told us, sheep and goats. There's always going to be wheat and weeds and ultimately, Jesus will sort it all out. But we don't stop worshiping because there are goats. No, we want to be his sheep. That's the point. We want to listen to the good shepherd's voice and follow him. The goal is, is to worship rightly, to worship with reverence and awe, regardless of what other people might be doing. And so that's, that's verse 1. I should probably get to verse 2. <laughs> He says, <laughs> uh, do not, uh, that's why I encourage you ahead of time. Do not be quick to speak before God, he says, for he is awesome. Now, I'm keenly aware of the irony of a sermon that's all about shutting up and I'll just keep talking. Uh, <laughs> thought about that all week long. Uh, now, we know as it pertains to this verse, every word that we say, uh, we will be held accountable for. According to Matthew 12, 36, which is, again, a very sobering thought, especially for a preacher. But I think all of us need to be mindful of this in all of our regular conversation. And I would just add, including social media. Solomon's saying this before that time. I wonder what he would say now. Social media is like reading a bathroom wall, isn't it? Occasionally you get something good, but normally it's garbage. Um, and we live in a day in social media where you can criticize and attack anyone without any accountability or virtually no accountability. But you need to see from this text, you will be held accountable. And see from the scriptures that you will be held accountable for every word by the one who matters most. So let our words be few. Let's be careful about making judgments and accusations when we don't have all the information, which for most of us is most of the time. Let's remember how serious God takes our words. Ninety proverbs at least speak about the right use of our words. And here the preacher is saying, we should not be rash with our mouths, but rather 
and, and not let our heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Now, that's true in general speech, but I think here he might have prayer specifically in mind. That as we're praying, we should give careful attention to what it is we're communicating, not just with our words, but you see it there, with our hearts. Because God is listening, as Alistair Begg has pointed out, not with earplugs, but with a stethoscope. He's listening to our words. He knows our hearts. Therefore, we should be measured. We should say words that are appropriate. We should not just be praying pious words that we think will impress God. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for doing that, didn't he? No, we should be really careful about how we speak. Why? Because God is in heaven, he says, and we are on earth. That's not to say God's not involved on the earth. He is involved on the earth. It's to say something about his greatness, of his holiness. The Lord's Prayer puts it in perfect balance. Our Father, he's near, he's gracious, in heaven. He's awesome. Let our words be few. So that's what he says in verse 2. We should not, we should, uh, uh, not be quick to speak before God because of his greatness. And then there is this proverb that's repeated in the second segment as well. When he says, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Now, here, I, I think what, what uh, the, the preacher is, is describing is the, the correspondence with the workaholic who toils endlessly for pointless gain. That individual has unending dreams. It, it's picking up, I think, some of the things we've been looking at, especially in chapter 4. With the person who toils and toils and toils, they're endless dreams. They can't rest even because what work is doing to them. They are like the foolish person in worship who just gushes out words, many words, many unending words. He says, it is natural for a fool to have too many words just as it is for a workaholic to have endless dreams about pointless gain. Our words matter in song, in prayer, in preaching. It's not that we shouldn't talk. It's that, again, we should be careful how we talk. Jesus here is the model for us, and he gives us the power for doing this, doesn't he? Jesus Christ never uttered a false word. He never sinned with his words. His words were chosen carefully as he hung on the cross for us. He died for those who would hurt people with their words. By his grace, he changes us, renews us. Think about that, how Jesus did that, by offering up himself for us. In Solomon's days, it was all about these physical sacrifices, these animal sacrifices. When the, when the temple was dedicated, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were offered to God. But none of that could deal with the sin in our hearts, ultimately. Only the spotless lamb of God, the final sacrifice, would pay the penalty for our sin. We should never get over this fact. We have access to God in worship. We have the privilege of worshiping him with reverence and awe because Jesus Christ has made us new, because Jesus Christ has given us access. This temple in Solomon's day was a reminder of the Garden of Eden with all of the symbols and all of the structure that was present in that temple. Eden, before the fall, was a place to stand in awe of God. And because of Jesus Christ, Eden will be restored one day. 
Paradise will be restored. And we will never sin again with our words. And one day, all the redeemed will gather together and stand in awe of our God, stand in awe of our Christ, who has made this possible. And so we go to the gospel. We recognize our need for Christ, not just as the model for speaking well, but as a source of power and hope for doing it. This is how we worship God with reverence and awe while we live under the sun. Well, segment number two, I don't have to spend much time on it because it's kind of a repeat. That'll be to your delight, and I should let my sermon words be few. Um, But there is a slight change there in the first subject, and that is vows, right? He says, keep your vows. When you vow vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Today we think about marriage vows. We think about vows to the church or other promises that you make uh, before God. We should keep our commitments, keep our commitments to each other, keep our commitments to God. Uh, You see various prayers uh, for God's blessing as God's people made vows through the years, like Numbers chapter 21. Um, There is Jonah's situation as he's in the belly of the well, as he made a vow. He says, uh, but with, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Or Hannah, as she says, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to your service. But we should be slow in making these vows to God, Proverbs tells us. And here, Kohelet tells us that we should not delay in keeping our vows. Why? Because God is worthy of our obedience. God is not... Some, someone that we just sort of say stuff to and make empty promises to. He's the God who's worthy of our worship. The psalmist says, praises do you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. He's worthy of us following through on our commitments. And to do otherwise, verse 4 says, is the mark of a fool. God is not pleased, and God knows our hearts when we make such empty promises. So he says it negatively in verses 5 and 6. Make no vow that you're not certain to keep. So when you tell God you're going to do something, he says, do it. Verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, that is the priest, the minister there in the temple, that it was a mistake. That is, I didn't really mean it. What does that do? That just arouses God's anger all the more. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That is, God will act in judgment eventually. And so, he says, basically, mean what you say. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Or as Jesus told us plainly, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And God gives us a warning about taking such vows lightly. So let's not make, as I call it, the the crisis vows. The crisis promises, you know, the kind of thing like, Lord, if you'll get me out of this situation, I'll be a missionary in the Congo or wherever your destination is. Lord, if, if John will ask me out next Valentine's Day, I will give 30% to the church, right? <laughs> I will read Leviticus seven times a day backwards if he would just ask me out. No, we're not, we're not cutting a deal with God. That's, that's, that's not what we're doing Those kinds of things are are foolish, and what happens is when the crisis passes, you just go on with your life as though you never said it. Dr. Aiken gives a contemporary example. 
of this sort of thing that's very relevant. He says, I met with a man years ago who was experiencing a crisis of faith. He was 40 years old and single, and he was thinking of walking away from the church. He said he had been raised in church and had gotten away from it in early adulthood and then came back at 35 because he desperately wanted to be married. He told me that for five years he attended worship, tithed regularly, and volunteered in ministries, and yet God had not given him a wife. And so he walked away. And Achan says, he did not want God. He wanted what God could give him. That's the kind of thing that's being addressed here. God is worthy of our worship. We worship him for who he is. May our mouths not lead us into sin. Let's practice restraint as we practice reverence. The fool gushes out many words. Verse 7, that Proverbs repeated, when dreams increase, words grow many, there is vanity. One of, one of the great examples of appropriate prayer, I think, in worship is in that great little parable in Luke 18. As Jesus says, two men went to the temple to pray, right? One was a Pharisee, and he gushed out many words, and boy, he had all kinds of good ones. And he was very self-righteous in his prayer, saying that it was way better than the sinner, the tax collector next to him. And then Jesus says, of that guy, the tax collector, all he could muster up was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man, the sinner, went down justified. That's the prayer that he was pleased to hear and answer. It was an honest prayer. It wasn't a long prayer. Didn't have a lot of big words in it, but it was true prayer. And Jesus was pleased with it. Again, Jesus gives us the model and the power for this. Jesus is the only one who kept every promise to the Father. Every promise. And it's through him that we, we keep our promises. The text is summarized in verse 7. God is the one you must fear. That is, take God seriously. Revere him. Stand in awe of his holiness and stand in awe of his mercy. For when we approach him, we see who he is. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm and the, and the disciples ask, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? Or as he tells them to cast the net on the other side and they caught so many fish they couldn't haul them in. And Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Our Christ is holy. He's worthy of worship that is filled with reverence and awe. And that leads me to a final question this morning. What do you do if you feel as though you have not worshipped rightly? What do you do if you have broken your vows? What do you do if you have sinned greatly with your lips? Well, that's an important question, my friend, not just for you, but for everybody in this room. Because if you don't have hope, we don't have hope. And the good news is Jesus Christ forgives sinners. He cleanses us. He renews us. He empowers us. And Jesus' forgiveness leads us to stand in awe of God. You know, that, this is very important. One of the keys to fearing God is treasuring his forgiveness. You see this in a number of places in the Psalms. Let me just give you one example that this is key for us. The psalmist says, if you could mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Answer, none of us. But with you, there is forgiveness. Purpose clause. Why? Why with him is there forgiveness? That you may be feared. You see, it's the forgiveness that we experience in Jesus that leads us to awe of God. 
Now that's very counterintuitive, isn't it? You would think that the, the verse would say something like, with you there is forgiveness, therefore go live however you want to. With you there is forgiveness, therefore it doesn't matter really what you do. That's not how the forgiveness of God works. When God's forgiveness is real in a person's life, it leads them to stand in awe of God. It leads them to want to obey God. Therefore, one of the primary ways that we will reverence God appropriately and worship him with awe is to consider who he is, how we've sinned, and how he forgives us, how he cleanses us. And it's that forgiveness, it's that cleansing power that leads us to sing, well, songs like How Great Thou Art, right? And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That's awe. That on the cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. You see, grace at times makes us dance with joy. And grace at other times leaves us in speechless awe before God. Both are appropriate responses to the grace of God. When I consider what a wretch I am, how corrupt my heart is, how many promises I haven't kept, but the fact that Jesus Christ has cleansed me, he's forgiven me through his ultimate sacrifice, it leaves me speechless. When I drink it in, it leaves me speechless. The forgiveness of God doesn't lead us to be cavalier. It doesn't lead us to be mindless. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Because the person who understands the grace of God wants to obey God. The person who's experienced the grace of God stands in awe of God. It makes us fall down on our faces and say, who am I? Who am I that you would be mindful of me? And what will it be like in heaven? A group of forgiven sinners who are standing in awe of God. With Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness that he may be feared. And one of the blessings of taking the Lord's Supper every week is meditating on his forgiveness. And this forgiveness is experienced through real repentance, not empty rituals, but through the careful examination of our hearts, the confession of sin, and the experience of Jesus' grace. From the sounds of the room, you think the sermon's over. And it is, and it is. Let's pray together, Father. <clears throat> Help us to be measured with our words, to use our words as a means of blessing, encouragement, instruction. May we not yap away with empty promises and empty piety, but with authentic hearts, truly worship you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to take the table now, we pray you would give us a heightened sense of gratitude for your forgiving grace that you may be feared. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.